This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor, I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guests the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks so much for listening. This is an interview I did with Zimena Karowska of Central European University. I've known Zimena for, well, we get into that. I've known her for about 10 years now. Uh, I've known of her work for longer than that. Um, but we chatted while uh, it was our winter breaks, uh, so to speak, in the end of December. Um, so I think it was the 30th or the 31st, so right around New Year's Eve, when we were able to chat, and she was very considerate of the time difference and let me uh, start the call around 9 a.m. Utah time, so I know it was late afternoon, her time in Central Europe, and it was a wonderful conversation getting to see her and chat with her, and we've had a a lot of conversations over the years, but I hadn't been able to connect with her in quite some time, uh, almost solely due to the pandemic. So we get started chatting about her growing up in the northern part of Poland with the dad in the military, moving around uh, different cities, as she called them, closed cities. Uh, she talks about how she was an over-intellectualized child uh, and how that shaped some of the interests that she had and her desire to eventually go to university, but how an injury from karate, which she was really into when she was younger and she still has some interest in it now, how that injury almost caused her to miss going to a university, and which ultimately channeled her towards international relations. She talks about Warsaw being gray, but as she calls it, free and very exciting in the late 1990s. That's where she did her uh, first uh, bit of, uh, educa of higher education. And she got her MA in Warsaw when Poland was part of the 2003 Coalition of the Willing surrounding uh, the Iraq War. Uh, she talks about being on the waiting list for getting into European University Institute, where, which is where she ultimately ended up. And so the story behind that and finding out about how she was ultimately accepted into that, into that program in university is a really fun one. Uh, and then she ended up at EUI where she worked with Fritz Craddockville. And so she talks about that and some of the other grad students that were working with Fritz, uh, folks that I now know uh, quite, quite closely. Uh, folks like Hannes Peltonen and others, um, David David McCord and, and some others. And then she talks about going, getting a job at Central European University, which is where she is now, uh, becoming an assistant professor and then eventually becoming an associate professor with tenure. And we talk about this is a period of time when she, we're intersecting quite a bit uh, through some projects that uh, 
we collaborated on over the years, focusing on constructivism and the next generation of constructivism. And then she talks about getting to University of Wales at Beresworth for a Marie Curie fellowship and how that really um, allowed her and enabled her to um, sort of re-energize and, and, and approach her research in all kinds of uh, new and interesting ways. She also talks throughout the conversation about the importance of Dvoriano and Perry Shortshay. Perry, of course, is, uh, was the first guest on this podcast. But the community that they built for folks like Zimena and myself, for that matter, that are that use and are interested in interpretive methods and methodologies uh, is something that she returns to throughout the discussion. We conclude with her approach to writing, uh, her decompressing uh, via hiking and watching MMA, <laughs> which uh, mixed martial arts, which I thought was interesting. That's one way that she decompresses. And then we conclude with her very detailed and I think very helpful and I would even say hopeful uh, and generous approach to editing a journal, the Journal of International Relations and Development. She's been editing that since uh, the in, since uh, 2020. And <clears throat> as someone that also took over editing or co-editing a journal, the Global Studies Quarterly that I co-edit with Yelena Subadish, taking that over in the middle of a pandemic. Um, there was a lot that I could relate to there. Uh, Zeman is a really good friend. She's just a, such a wonderful person. I hope that you all enjoyed this conversation as much as I did in having it with uh, Zimena. And I'm really hoping that I get to cross paths with her in person in a conference coming up, whether that's the ISA or a conference in Europe when those start to become feasible again with the the ever-evolving uh, pandemic that we're under. So it goes about an hour and a half, and I really hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Zimena Karowska on the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. Cheers. Professor Karowska, welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. It's so great to be with you and talking about the um, craft of IS um, scholarship, I guess. And the journey as well. And the journey, right? yeah, yeah, the journey. So I know from your journal narrative politics piece, uh, and maybe just chatting with you, that you're from the northern part of Poland. Is that right? Is that where you grew up? Uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I grew up at the Baltic Sea in a number of uh, small cities because I actually come from a military family. Yeah, my dad was an officer in the Polish Socialist Army, which means that uh, we were moving across the northern part of the country. And we did live in particular conditions on a number of occasions, including at least partly closed cities, which was uh, a typical thing for, um, uh, for the military in this part of the world. Wait, so what are those? That closed cities? Yeah, yeah. yeah, closed cities, it means that they are basically only for the inhabitants and it's not that easy to move in and out. So I remember perhaps one of them, but later on when I uh, went to the uh, primary and secondary school, we were already in a kind of under normal conditions 
and these were already uh, late 80s and uh, 90s. So it was um, after the, uh, the collapse of the socialist re regime, so to say. But th these are my kind of earliest memories, as I also, I think, wrote in the Journal of Narrative Politics uh, piece, uh, I had these early memories of um, closed beaches and clo closed kind of uh, uh, cities. And my kind of first politically memory is really of uh, 1999 and pa partially free uh, elections in Poland. And I remember my dad sent me to copy by hand uh, the election results of different candidates. So, and we kind of still keep it at home. Although, um, yeah, of course, there was a lot of kind of paradox there because as, as, a, as an officer, he was certainly part of the regime. And uh, I grew up at this sort of, uh, um, yeah, in the constant rebellion against that and the, uh, the freedom of the 90s. Uh, 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 in Poland, so that's quite a that's uh, uh, that's a continuous kind of um, unspoken conversation between myself and my father. What did um, so? How old were you when the uh, when the transformation was happening uh, in in the late eighties? Uh, then and and then did you see it around around you in terms of like your school setting? And obviously your your father. There was probably some restructuring going on with the military as well, yeah. right? So yeah, what was that like? I was nine in nineteen eighty nine. So really, at the age when you start kind of uh, maybe not thinking politically, uh, but you start understanding that there are changes. And I don't quite remember, except for these kind of vivid memories of closed beaches, I don't have uh, particularly kind of, I don't have memories of repression at school or indoctrination at school or uh, singing uh, communist songs, although I'm sure it did happen. I just don't kind of remember that. But yeah, that was uh, 1989 and I was, uh, I was nine and yeah, changes uh, were um, underway. My father somehow, um, well, he ended up in the UN forces in southern Lebanon. So uh, that was his way of going through the restructuring of the Polish army, because they were, of course, reducing from huge numbers and huge amounts uh, as the Polish army was part of the Warsaw Pact uh, formation uh, they were reducing numbers uh, uh, significantly but he ended up in uh, uh, UN forces so when I was a teenager I was basically growing up without my father around and uh, yeah kind of taking advantage of the situation <laughs> well and you you mentioned in that same uh, journal and narrative politics piece about how you were the generation that not only saw the transformation, but then was also supposed to get out and supposed to get out and about yes. and supposed to go and travel and supposed to see uh, other parts of the world. So re when did you start doing that? Like, when did you start going outside of uh, Poland uh, or, or had you always traveled ever since you were uh, really a, a lot younger? I really started in at high school. 
uh, I had a very, very good high school that I think set me up for life in a way, in so many uh, different ways. Uh, so we went. Wait, was uh, it? In, was it in uh, in the northern part of Poland, or was yes. it down in Warsaw? Okay, okay. It was in the still in the northern part of Poland, mm -hmm. uh, in a city which is called Koszalin. It's like about maybe one hundred thousand. It's not big for Poland, but it is uh, kind of not small. And I went to an experimental class, uh, partly because, yeah, I also had a very good primary school, very good history teachers in particular. I, I was taking part in all sorts of history competitions and so on and so forth. I skipped a class and there were the, those times were also very experimental times, including educational project so I ended up in a, an experimental class in a high school uh, with a, a very intensive language training but also humanities and mathematics depending on uh, what we uh, what people's kind of disposition uh, was and uh, that were yeah mid-90s and this is when I started traveling a lot um, in Europe so Italy, France, Spain, quite a lot, but for pleasure, so to say, not for any educational uh, uh, experiences. And uh, my first uh, educational exchange was only during my MA at Warsaw University. So did you, um, was it kind of assumed in your family or for you that you were definitely going to go to a university uh, or was that something that you kind of just, it, it was later on that, that you decided or, or it was assumed that you would go? It was very clear because I was a, just an over-intellectualized child. There's no question about that. Uh, extremely uh, immersed in, uh, in books only child, lonely, no question about that. Uh, but I had also a different experience um, in uh, uh, late uh, primary school, uh, early high school. I started training karate by accident, obviously, with a friend of mine. One uh, winter holiday, we didn't know what to do, and we signed up for a self-defense uh, course, uh, and this is how we stayed on. And that changed my life very, uh, uh, very clearly, because I, I basically started kind of uh, living two lives at the same time. One very intellectual, because I've always been a hermit, I've always been over intellectualized but then there was this other path uh, that simultaneously um, threw me into yeah different uh, different ways of uh, uh, different ways of living I was surrounded by uh, uh, people from all sorts of social strata so to say very kind of um, uh, very uh, invested in team spirit very kind of a different kind of affective uh, relationship uh, with life. So um, I mentioned to you before we started uh, recording, I almost did not go to university before because of that, uh, because I was uh, taking part in a, in a tournament. I, I got an injury and uh, it was exactly at the moment when uh, there were entry exams to 
to a university. And I wouldn't have gone to university if I uh, didn't have this exemption from a, a history national history competition. So I was basically lucky. But uh, I think in a way, uh, yeah, that is very kind of indicative of the life I've been living since then. So kind of parallel, two parallel tracks, but it was always assumed I would go to university because this is how my family would know me as this over-intellectualized child. What um, did you have an idea when you were uh, transitioning into the university, what you wanted to pursue and then like what you, what kind of a career that you wanted to have or, um, you know, what, what, what was the plan back then? No, there was no plan. I, I didn't know, uh, except for my intense uh, interest in history and sociology and literature. And I really did want to uh, study within yet another kind of experimental program of those times at Polish at Warsaw University, uh, which was basically an uh, interdisciplinary humanities uh, MA. Uh, and I wanted to do that, but my exemption uh, was on, um, I don't remember exactly, but my exemption was not good enough uh, for this particular program. And it was good enough for international relations. So they could take me when I was at the hospital and couldn't do the entry exams. But uh, this interdisciplinary humanities uh, program just so uh, they said no and this is how I ended up uh, with Aya I think I cannot reconstruct now very well but at least partly I think I went for Aya because it seemed like a fancy thing to do like international politics and as we mentioned uh, those were days where uh, when there was um, really a lot of push for like going out leaving uh seeking opportunities and i had some sort of inkling that i would give it to me we did um and i'm also thinking about the experiences that your your dad obviously had uh you know especially being with uh un peacekeepers in lebanon did you ever chat with him uh i mean it would have been when you know the end of your teenage years so maybe that wasn't the time to you know, have chats with with uh, a dad. Um, but I, I'm just wondering if any of his experiences piqued your interest regarding international relations or or maybe not. It must have been so. I, you know, I have this psychoanalytical framework in my thinking. So my immediate answer is it must have had a lot to do with what my father was doing and how I was growing up. Because I was growing up among the military and the karate club that I uh, practiced with, it was also partly military. We had uh, coaches from the military. So I do have this sort of, um, yeah, affinity growing up uh, with a particular type of thinking about security. And the uh, yes, I did talk with my dad to an extent about his experiences but I mean anybody who have <laughs> studied uh, military people I mean there are large areas 
large taboo areas that you cannot, I mean, maybe if you have a very good um, relationship and this is not a family member of yours, uh, you can talk about it a little bit. But uh, it's weird with military careers because there are these large hidden areas that you cannot uh, speak about a lot. But um, um, and the, 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 my father also belongs to this uh, generation that was very proud of serving in the military, which I obviously have an issue with uh, being a critical, uh, a critical security scholar. So there, there were conversations, but there were never the kind of conversations that I would have with, let's say, research interlocutors with people that I would uh, interview. It's like, I don't know, <laughs> I think maybe field workers um, kind of can recognize this uh, situation that the better you know someone, the more difficult it is to interview them. And with family members, um, yeah, I mean, interview is not the right um, take, I guess. So what was it, had you, I mean, I'm sure you'd been to Warsaw quite, uh, quite a few times before you uh, started uh, the university, but what was it like living in Warsaw? Was it, um, wasn't it a, a, a kind of a, a fun experience uh, for you considering that you'd, I mean, you'd been in bigger cities as well, but, uh, but this, yeah. you know, one of the biggest, right? So, yeah, I mean, Warsaw in late nineties, gray, that's the immediate kind of image but also extremely uh, exciting and i would even use the word free especially uh in 2021 or 22 in comparison it's a very different warsaw the warsaw where i studied is was is very different was my memories of it are very different from what it is uh, now. Now it's very kind of, it's lively and very consumerist, so to say. But in late 90s, it was very much about, yeah, yeah, about enjoying freedom and being hopeful. I know it sounds uh, weird and so typical, like, yeah, the 90s in those kind of aspiring countries, it was so hopeful, and they are now all disillusioned and populist. Um, but that's my uh, memory. It was very exciting. It was, uh, I very much enjoyed uh, also the culture, theater, again, experimental theater in the 90s in Poland. Uh, that was a very important part of my kind of uh, becoming uh, becoming a person, uh, I think. So it was, but it was still gray. It was still poor. I was poor, <laughs> and uh, the city was not pretty. Uh, as such. What, what was the what was the funding structure back then for universities? Did were, did, they, did they provide a stipend, uh, or did you have to work part time jobs, or or maybe all of the above because the stipend wasn't enough, or how, how did it work? I like just uh, thinking about our conversation. I also thought about this moment. All my education throughout, everything has always been free. I've I've never had like an uh, yeah I I don't think uh, 
yeah, I didn't have to pay. I didn't have to pay any fees ever, including uh, during my MA, I went to, uh, to St. Petersburg. I studied at uh, St. Petersburg State University for a year, a very important uh, uh, year for me. Uh, back then, of course, I had to maintain myself and my parents helped me a little. So I kind of lived a poor existence, so to say, but uh, there was no fee uh, involved. Uh, uh, and uh, my MA program was also free. Uh, so I have to also admit, I never worked a part time job next to my. Oh, no, uh, I did later on during my MA studies. Uh, I was teaching English, actually, but it was more out of uh, wanting to have like a little bit more money <laughs> uh, to enjoy uh to enjoy uh, my life in Warsaw but I was never forced uh, uh, to work I never had to work and uh, that's extraordinary when I uh, look back the same with my PhD I had a stipend and it was never much but it was always kind of enough uh just to get by to get by yeah um, what, what was the year at St. Petersburg State like? Uh, and it's because on your CV, it says a non-degree research program, but I'm, I'm kind of curious. Yeah, it was two, uh, 2001 and two. So I lived through 9-11 in St. Petersburg. I remember that day I was drinking beer at the, at the river at the university. And uh, I, this is how we found out. And the whole country was, the military was, of course, put on standby. And, and I just uh, I, I just want to clarify for any of my U.S.-based listeners uh, to this podcast that 9-11 happened in the morning here, but it would have been in the late afternoon in St. Petersburg. So drinking beer was perfectly appropriate. All right. Yes, yes. Sorry. Okay. I, but I, I also assume that, that it's mostly adults that may listen in, right? That's true. So, That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, I mean, uh, and very beautiful month, September in St. Petersburg, actually. Uh, but yeah, I remember that day and the anxiety around it. Um, so in, it was relatively early days of the internet. So I remember we would go to an internet cafe and watch, uh, watch the situation. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, if there is a war, you know, you are stuck in Russia in St. Petersburg and the national military forces are put on standby, what do you do? But somehow, um, yeah. Well then, um, and maybe, maybe this just wasn't as big on the scene as, as I've made it out to be, but I remember the, you know, as the United States is constructing the coalition of the willing going into Iraq, um, at least George W. Bush pointed to, so by 2003 or probably 2002, you're back in Poland, right? Yeah. Um, and, and for George W. Bush, he would, you know, the, the kind of one of the famous lines, uh, in one of his debates with John Kerry in 2004 was, well, you forgot Poland, right? You know, like going through all the different, um, uh, countries that contributed to, uh, you know, the coalition of the willing, as he called it, uh, as they called it in, in 2003, was Poland's um, participation in uh, both Enduring Freedom and then Operation Iraqi Freedom, was that something that was on the scene in, in Poland? Did people discuss it a little bit? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
Yes, I remember those uh, moments also because when I came back to Poland, I went on to do an internship with the, the Polish Defense Ministry. That must have been 2003, just uh, before I graduated uh, with my MA. And it was, uh, again, <laughs> a, really a source of pride to be part of this uh, coalition, something that we, again, now as a critical scholar, I, I jump to denaturalize and deconstruct, but yes, that was, that was a big thing and the kind of investment in this Polish-US um, uh, bond that I think Poland also wanted to kind of be rewarded for which might not have happened. Uh, but yes, it was quite big on the scene. And uh, in general, this theme of Polish-US military cooperation through NATO and not only through precisely non-NATO uh, alliances and coalitions has always been important. So it's uh, kind of part of this typical balancing, are we part of the EU or NATO uh, or US and what kind of equipment do we buy, right? And what kind of offset can you give us? Yes, yeah, so that, that, that was exactly those times of, uh, of kind of buying uh, US support more broadly. Um so at what point, so obviously you, you went on to the MA at the uh, University of Warsaw, um, but at what point, so at that point, were you for sure that you wanted to become an academic, that you wanted to go on to your PhD eventually, or was it one of these things that there was, there were other opportunities out there that you were thinking about that you ultimately didn't take, but you were still thinking about them at that time? I, uh, I wasn't sure at all. I wasn't sure at all, and uh, but I had this background of um, a lot of reading and research in sociology and philosophy, and it was it was more or less clear that I mean this is where I should go, but I don't I didn't know what to do with myself, and uh, I approached my. Uh, then MA supervisor, perhaps I could do a PhD. And he said, look, I can't, I cannot take you on because I already have like one or two people and the department will not allow me because of the departmental politics. It's always like this. So, uh, but how about you uh, apply for European University Institute? And I didn't know what it was. And did, did you at least know it was in Florence? Like when they? <laughs> no, I, I okay. knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. So it was this level of kind of uh, uh, ignorance and uh, contingency. But um, he had a he had a colleague that did a postdoc there, and this is how the kind of uh, uh, information about uh, EUI spread at Warsaw University. And I said, yeah, sure. Sure. And I, I applied. I remember it was a uh, paper application still. So I had to like print out and kind of come up with a ridiculous project about European security that I wouldn't kind of accept myself for if I, if I were now sitting, uh, if I were sitting on the committee. 
but yeah, I applied. I applied also for another position at a, at a Polish university, but and I was kind of accepted, but this was not appealing at all. But I applied for Florence and I went for an interview. So they did interview then. Yeah. So this they is one of, kind of like what Aber at least used to do. Maybe Aber still does this, but you actually then went to an interview. Okay. So what was that like? Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, um, <laughs> so the, uh, the, the chair of the committee was uh, Colin Crouch who's a British uh, political uh, economist, uh, uh, a fantastic scholar. And there wasn't any European security person on the committee at all. But I was also, I'm sure I was talking nonsense. I didn't know what I was talking about at all. And uh, I didn't, uh, they put me on the waiting list. But it was, again, happy times, 2003. It was 2003, time, times of still hope and opening, and the Polish government was giving uh, quite a few stipends because at EUI what happens is the national governments give stipends uh, for a particular number of their citizens. So uh, the number was quite high, but they put me on the waiting list. So they put me on the waiting list, uh, and I, I think I didn't even realize how much I might be missing out uh, and I went on to do other things I went for a summer school in Germany on migration and one day I called my then boyfriend and he said look they called me from Florence uh, and it was already yeah it was early September they they want you to go if you want to and you're in Germany at the time that he I was in Germany that he's so called I, you. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, so I, I called home and he said, look, they called, do you want to go? I mean, but you have to go now because the, the, the academic year uh, was starting and so on and so forth. So I took a train to Poland. I had to queue for a visa in the Italian embassy because it was, we, Poland was not, uh, not yet in the... Right, not yet in the EU, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So I had to do that, and uh, uh, I basically, I didn't think twice. I packed whatever I had to necessary, necessary things, and I, and I went. And the academic year was already going on, so I had problems uh, kind of getting accommodation and all these things, but uh, complete mess complete mess and uh, if uh, my boyfriend uh, if he hadn't been at home right because they only called I don't know they, there was no email I mean no, there was email, but they weren't notifying people by email right uh, yeah. I don't know I don't know how this uh, how this was planned but this is how I ended up at uh, UI so when when you got there, then what what was or what is uh, or what was the structure? Was it more like kind of like the British uh, system or is it like the U.S. system? Like you don't take you, do you take modules? Do you take seminars or is it you're working on a research project with a dedicated supervisor, um, which I know it took you a little while to figure out who the supervisor was going to be. So how did that sort itself out? It's mixed. Uh, so there is some coursework, and uh, this is all kind of doctoral courses. 
but you are starting to work on your project straight away and you are supposed to submit a, an extended project proposal at the end of year one. It used to be called June paper. I'm not sure if it's still called like that. But yeah, you are taking courses. And for me, it was absolutely necessary to take these courses because I was absolutely untrained. I was very well read in sociology. <laughs> uh, you said but, it was a, like most of the experience was somewhat atheoretical. Uh, most yes. of the programs that you were in before, before you got to EUI, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I ended up in Fritz Kotofil's course, which is particular, but doesn't teach you like realism, liberalism, constructivism. But uh, he was telling his own tale out of all sorts of digressions from all sorts of readings. And I had known nothing, so I was not really able to link through all these digressions what, so, what was the name of the class what was the name of the course uh, the, the, it was international relations theory i might it might have had a title i don't remember but it was basically uh kind of like a pro seminar on on the yeah. field of international relations and he had already moved from munich to, yes. um, to florence it was right during that time though so he hadn't been there very long either i believe right yeah it might have been his second year okay um but i was assigned a different supervisor because i was doing this european security or i thought i was doing european security and uh, colin crowd bless him assigned me a, also a new person, Pascal Vincent, uh, who was a professor of European security at Robert Schumann Center, Robert Schumann Center uh, back then. Uh, but he was not there yet. Uh, I think he was just uh, arriving. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't meet him immediately. I met Fritz uh, immediately. And so what was, <laughs> what was that experience like? And just, I mean, just in parentheses here, I think I know I've told you this over the years in many different countries and <laughs> probably with beers in front of us, but this was the period of time then where I had just had, um, he had just joined as the external member of my dissertation committee. Uh, and so, um, but every defense that we had was always in the morning, Iowa time, uh, where I was, but it was always like late afternoon, wherever he was. Uh, and by the end for me, it was, you know, late afternoon Florence time. And he had been out tasting wine all, you know, day and then joins my <laughs> dissertation defense. And of course runs circles around all of us. I knew he'd run circles around me, but he runs circles around all of us. Uh, so I don't, I mean, maybe he just was just tasting it, but you couldn't tell because, you know, he, it's just like he jumped through it. We didn't have Skype back then. We didn't have mm -hmm. zoom. It was a, a, a sort of a, a conference call, uh, phone. I remember, and you could just feel him jumping through the phone. <laughs> um, so sorry, I just, I wanted to put that digression in there. Cause this is the period of time when I'm really getting my full experience with Fritz as well. So, um, it's not that easy for me to kind of put my story and my journey with Fritz in a in, in, in a one episode podcast, let alone. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I think that's the best way of putting it. Uh, because again, there are different kind of um, plots there. So there is this plot of me 
on the one hand being lucky that I didn't have to unschool myself because I wasn't trained in anything. I wasn't trained in positivist political science, for instance. I didn't really know something like this existed. And I wasn't trained in post-structuralism either because these, these two kind of were defining the field uh, back then. So uh, I didn't have to unschool myself, but I also was um, not prepared for this sort of uh, intellectual encounter where you need to have this enormous background in order to link digressions. That would be my way of putting it. Because of course the readings were there, and we were supposed to read and but the readings were never discussed. So that was his way of doing the seminars. He would prepare for each seminar. He had his lecture, which only tangentially related to the readings. And of course, me, I was doing all the readings, but it didn't help me at all. Well, what were your notes like? <laughs> Have you ever like gone back to look at your notes? Because I'm thinking of like if like how do you write notes for all of these di digressions? Um, or maybe you just figured out after a while you didn't need to. Um. Uh, well, I, I was taking notes certainly. Uh, I was taking notes, and then I was uh, you know you know I I'll be honest. I took that course twice in my first year, and then in my second year, I was this level of uh, kind of. Uh, lack of uh, socialization into the discipline, I guess one one could put it like this. Uh, so my notes from the second year, I think, make more sense uh, when I look at them. Uh, but yeah, I was completely confused because I didn't have any anchorage at all uh, for, for this encounter. It was easier in other uh, subjects because I think... Uh, I think we had to take two or three uh, seminars um, or two uh, substantive seminars and one research design and methods. And uh, I also took uh, Nationalism by Michael uh, Keating, which was a fantastic seminar, very structured, very kind of um, informative and gave me quite a lot of uh, foundation to think uh, uh, political science, so to say. But with Fritz, uh, it, uh, it wasn't like that at all. So yeah, my notes didn't make sense. And he was aware of that. I think he was aware of that quite, uh, 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 quite clearly. But he was also quite generous in the sense that um, I mentioned that I, he was not assigned to be my supervisor but at some point uh, through my confusion I thought I, I, I want I want to speak this kind of language I want to learn this kind of language uh, and I would like to do more of that and I asked him to be my supervisor and I remember very clearly the moment I was walking down from the bus stop People who have been to EUI, they will know from um, San Domenico, I was going down to the university. He was going up and in the middle of that path, I said, hello, Fritz, will you be my supervisor? And uh, he was, he didn't even smile. He said yes. <laughs> and he continued up the hill and I went down the hill no 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 further clarification needed no, that was it no. oh. <laughs> i i don't know i mean 
other people's experiences of uh, supervision with Fritz, but with me, it's been uh, uh, typical. The, there hasn't been that much uh, clarification along the way. No, no. Um, but one of the uh, one of the other things I was going to ask you is because my this is also right around a little bit before, but then a few years later is when I'm starting to come into contact with kind of the, this this EUI group of uh, uh, PhD students that you were a part of. Like, so the first time I met David McCord. Uh, was in Bologna in 2008, and he had taken a train up from Florence because he was at EUI at the time. So a little bit later than this period of time, but I knew that like he was there, you were there, uh, Hannes was there. Was there like a cohort of folks that at least you could, if you couldn't get the clarity in the seminars uh, right away, you at least had folks you could chat with and and you know share stories with that kind of stuff. Mm. Again, not that straightforward because yes and no. I mean, yes, in the sense that we spent quite a lot of time together at the famous bar fiasco and elsewhere, uh, but we were all very different. So Fritz did not set up a school of any sort, no turn, no, no, like he, he was, yeah, back then he was always very insistent on not wanting to do that. So he supervised across very different fields. And there was, I don't, I think back and uh, I, I cannot think of people overlapping uh, very, uh, very strongly. So we were very different uh, in terms of what we wanted to do and what we uh, what we did, but there was some sort of, I mean, having the same supervisor always links you. I know that this is, it's maybe not, it's a problematic thing to say, uh, but on many levels, and I realize that, but it does bond you somehow. And Fritz also had this uh, practice, which again, when I, <laughs> when I, when I, yeah, uh, this practice which we called boot camp, and that uh, that uh, was the following: at the end of the first year, uh, people not only did they submit the June paper, but they were supposed to uh, talk about the research in front of all the others, all the other Fritz, uh, supervisees by Fritz, all the other people that were supervised by Fritz. So all this first year first years were basically exposed to all sorts of critique but all the other cohorts and that is a sort of uh, that I think also bonded us although not always in the best possible way because it was a real boot camp it shouldn't be called like this we should have come up with a different name uh, but yes there is uh, yes there is this so I cannot say that we had a coherent, uh, integrated group, and we would sit down and we would talk about our research projects, nothing of the kind, nothing of the kind. But there was a sort of, um, yeah, it was cool to be Fritz's supervisee again. Sorry to be, you know, so shallow, uh, but there, there was quite a lot of that. And I, yeah, I remember young Dave McCord. Of course, he's still young, but we had these, uh, uh, yeah, we had a lot of, um, we had quite a lot of time together. And especially 
uh, in my own cohort uh, with Hannes Peltonen and one more uh, friend of ours, uh, Thomas Teichler, who has left academia. Uh, we did, and Fritz, we had a cooking society. So um, I was the only one who never cooked, but Thomas, Hannes and Fritz, they cooked kind of... Uh, uh, from time to time, and uh, we had this sort of uh, uh, time together. So as I told you before, Fritz never sat me down, never taught me how to write a research paper, but he did tell us a lot of stories about uh, um, international relations as a field. So you um, mentioned to me earlier, before before uh, we started going, about the, the impact of the 2007 APSA was and that was your first uh conference so what it wasn't an isa i, I mean a, a big international conference it wasn't an isa it was the apsa and then within that i mean one of the reasons why that was such a formative experience for you it sounded like was because you were starting to intersect it in the orbit of the interpretive uh methods folks like devoriano and then the the very first episode of the hasty scholar podcast the guest uh was uh perry Schwarzschay, my yeah. emeritus uh colleague um so first off like how did you decide to go to apsa um because it is it, it most of the time it's usually isa especially for mm -hmm. euro and uk based scholars um usually the big international uh, conference first one is ISA, but it sounds like it was APSA for you. And then within that, I mean, you had a very otherwise un-APSA experience of having this awesome uh, moment of the Methods Cafe and getting to yes. interact with all these folks. Yeah, yeah so I met uh, Dvorayano, who changed my life, by the way. I think in 2006, uh, they were doing this interpretive policy, still do, uh, there is interpretive policy analysis conference and it was in Birmingham and I applied with a paper on a frustrated practitioner because I had been uh, through fieldwork in Georgia and I researched uh, EU uh, legal practitioners as assistants as providing assistance to um, legal reform in Georgia and so on and so forth. Uh, I applied with that paper. I met uh, Dvora in Birmingham in 2006, and that was quite, a, quite an experience. And then I decided I need to kind of look into it more because this interpretive way of making sense of social reality, so to say, it was it was really glue. It was something because I was on the one hand, I was always a theorist. And on the other, I have, I really like empirics. I really like data. I really like stuff. I really like being part of things, but I did not have any way of kind of connecting these things, to be honest. And Fritz doesn't give you this. To be honest, you have to come up with it uh, on your own, even if he always says, you know, research problem is this, the most important and so on and so forth. So, so Dvora was this important meeting Dvora was this important moment for me because I started kind of uh, making sense of it. Uh, and uh, I don't remember how exactly I continued this link, but uh, um, Dvora and Perry organized Methods Cafe. Oh, I'm not sure if Perry was there, but Dvora for sure at uh, APSA. 
and uh, she kind of uh, let me know about it and she also kind of made me more aware of how important conferencing is going to conferences and so on and so forth and meeting people more broadly and APSA Chicago was the first time for me that I took part in a, uh, in a big one uh, through, uh, uh, through Methods uh, Cafe and I met uh, lately on Fuji there um, I met others and so this, it was not Aya that took me to a big conference it was interpretive American political science, if I may put it like this. Uh, and I continued along these lines. But I did attend uh, a big round table uh, featuring famous IA scholars at that APSA. And uh, yeah, I, I wasn't, uh, um, how to put it, overwhelmed uh, 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 by it. Uh, right. I, so I, I, I was going to say your experience at the Methods Cafe has got to be just such a juxtaposition with yeah. probably most of the other panels that are going on uh, at that APSA for you. But I I went to another APSA a, late, a year later and um, well, I I did like it, but I never kind of, I was never part of uh, American IR. I don't understand American IA. And uh, many people tell me again and again that I, I don't understand American IA. And I just, I officially admit I, uh, uh, I don't. But I also never tried to kind of uh, ingratiate myself uh, into these circles. It was always uh, precisely interpretive, American interpretive political science, which I find extremely inspiring uh, that, uh, that I felt affinity with. Well, and even the even the structure of that methods cafe. I mean, Perry and I talked about it, and then I I run the uh, if if and when we get back to normal conferencing again, I'll continue to run it. The the methods cafe at the Western Political Science Association meeting, um, which I know I think you've have you been to one of those before? Did, did I we, was at one yeah. in Hollywood. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. What what year was? It? Do you remember what year that would have been? Two thousand thirteen. Okay. Also, also very important to me. Uh, I mentioned to you that I, um, so I organize a round table on reflexivity for that uh, conference, uh, also within the stream of interpretive political science that Dvorah and Perry have curated. Um, I spoke more with uh, Cecilia Lynch in that conference, who I think, I might be getting it wrong, but I think she took a subway to Hollywood. Is it possible? I think uh, yeah there's so a tr yeah there's the there's the metro that they can take yeah yeah, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh and she was finishing uh, her interpretive uh interpreting international politics book uh then and she asked me do you want to kind of read the manuscript and I was yes of course I want to read the manuscript I was really thrilled and so she sent it to me. Uh, I went to New York from Hollywood. I had friends in uh, uh, New York back then. And I read this wonderful, wonderful manuscript. Uh, but I also took part in Methods Cafe there at Western. And uh, I remember in particular, uh, Joe Soss and his advice on conversational interviewing, if I, if I remember correctly, and how much it helped me again to make sense of my encounters in the field. So it's a bit of a weird, um, let's say, component 
of my uh, 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 of my journey because I'm not a political scientist, uh, but so many uh, interpretive political scientists have helped me uh, in my work. Well, and I um, I don't maybe this is inappropriate to say, but I see when I'm reading your work that's that's focused on interpretive methods and and your own positionality and and thinking about um, you know some of the different ways in which uh, you sort of critically reflect um, when you're doing research. I I see the enthusiasm that you have for it. Just it's just like like it's almost like it's it's it can't be contained uh and and when we chat about it i think you know when i had you here uh along with uh, you know a bunch of our other uh motley crew so to speak uh, of constructivists in whenever that was 2015 here in salt lake city i remember our conversations about methods were just um so enjoyable and it could have just been the setting as well because perry was always coming to um to the talks uh but um and it's not like they're always happy subjects either right i mean sometimes it can it can be uh measured by how much disappointment you have and the inability of those methods to be able to get to what it is that you want to do or not necessarily the methods but the moments that you have but even talking about it is still i think refreshing i don't know if that's how you feel yes yes i mean i i benefited enormously from these environments uh over years uh, yes, and I'm ve- I'm very grateful. I've never had uh, any anything like the, anything like this in terms of talking about methods uh, in any kind of political science or or, or IR in Europe as well. I mean, there is a, of course a lot of talk about the politics of methods because it's a very important kind of structuralist theme, but uh, there isn't that much of actually, yeah, doing, or there wasn't back then, it's been changing, uh, of actually being in the midst of fieldwork and being kind of completely clueless and doing everything wrong, uh, even if you only realize that uh, you've been doing things uh, wrong, after the fact so that that was basically my doctoral experience right because we didn't have any proper uh opportunities to 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 think and uh, yeah practice methods before i went to do field work so you defended your phd in 2008 uh yeah. and so this period of time um there's obviously a bit, there's a lot of things that are happening uh, right around this time, uh, both like globally and then for you uh, locally. And then also, um, you know, at least marshalling your field work to get to the point of the PhD. And then uh, you, you, the way you write about it with a lot of humility, I think, um, in, in the chapter in, um, in our book on tactical constructivism, is that you make it sound like it was fairly easy going from the PhD to your first position, uh, that you were, you had a little bit of a a zone of safety to be able to do that, but I'm sure it wasn't that easy because then the other thing I'm thinking about is 2008 is also when the global financial crisis is melting, you know, melting down a lot of the funding structures, not just in the United States, but in Australia and the, and, and Europe and everything else. So that period of time, I'm kind of curious if we could interrogate that just a little bit, because it had to be a little bit more challenging than, um, than maybe I've, you know, I, I the impression I've, I've I've had so far uh yeah well I, I i have to 
own my privilege here and say it was exactly as straightforward as I describe it in the chapter. And I was extremely lucky, extremely in every respect. So towards the end of my uh, PhD, I submitted and then I had already uh, a fellowship to do fieldwork in Ukraine. So I went to, I submitted, I went to Ukraine and I wanted, I waited many months for the <laughs> defense uh, date. Um, and then um, I was uh, a professor who was also sitting on my uh, defense. He told me, look, there is this uh, call. Why don't you apply? And I applied. That was the only job I applied for. And I got it. And of course, it needs to be contextualized. It needs to be contextualized in many respects, including that I had uh, Fritz Kotofil, Oliveira, and Vorayano writing reference letters. I think I was hired on, on these names. I was hired on the promise. And then I think they got more than they bargained for, but that's a different story. Uh, so I, I need to kind of admit it. It was a complete and utter contingency. You know, a lot of things aligned and I got my position extremely easily. And I have to say this, like another thing is that later on, it all went down the drain, <laughs> uh, so to say. But I, I, yeah, because I was not ready. I, there wasn't much mentorship. I didn't know what to do with things. I didn't know how to establish myself. It took me a, an extremely long time. Uh, but this first step was, uh, it just kind of happened. I, uh, I, I flew from Ukraine. I interviewed. I went back to Ukraine. And I got an email from uh, back then the head of um, the department that they, they're hiring me and that the rector would like to speak to me, to have a meeting with me. But I was already in Kiev, so they wouldn't fly me uh, another time for that meeting. So that would be it. And then the provost will be in touch for the um, uh, for, for the contract. Obviously, I did not negotiate or anything like this. I didn't know that one negotiates. I didn't know that one negotiates, right? Uh, I, I probably, I mean, I had no um, leverage anyway of any sort. Uh, but this is how it started. Yeah, so I finished my fieldwork in Kiev in May. I still went to Florence just to hang out with people <laughs> that were finishing their PhDs. And in August, I, uh, I started in, in August 2008, I started in Budapest and I immediately had three uh, co graduate courses to design. Uh, I had very little clue. I had very little experience, teaching experience. So this is, I, I remember very well, like I spent all my time preparing these courses, uh, putting this uh, altogether and there I have to from then I have to say many years of cluelessness uh, continued uh, but somehow I <laughs> got by where, where were you picking up some of the for lack of a better term professionalization or socialization cues were you getting that at conferences were you getting it just in the interactions with you know people at workshops 
were you just figuring it out on your own? Um, you know, I, I'm even thinking about uh, like, cause you mentioned to me, like your PhD, your dissertation, it didn't go into the the sort of normal track of moving into becoming your first book. It, mm-hmm. it was sort of um, uh, bifurcated into a couple of edited volumes that you did yes. as the sort of team project. So um, yeah, I'm kind of curious as to when, how you were, you know, getting some of the professionalization cues during this period of time and how you were kind of figuring it out on your own. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not an easy question because I, I think maybe I got professionalized a couple of years ago. <laughs> I, maybe it's a joke. I don't know. I'm maybe still working really. on it in my case. Right? Yeah, I mean, what, what does this mean? Now I'm, I'm, I, I, I'm supposed to kind of uh, work on uh, professional development of my students and apparently I'm quite good at it, but I, I would say I became professional a couple of years back. Um, yeah, so, you know, I come from this background where professionalization is even a frowned upon. I'll be honest, like kind of training is like also Fritz doesn't do training. He does education, whatever. Uh, so um, the difference between me, I was very young when I started my PhD and uh, the difference between me and people that started a little bit later and did the MAs in, let's say, more mainstream places, they would come to their PhD with a, a very high awareness of how you progress. Uh, in academia, I had well, no already knowledge. already so entering yes. into PhD, they already had yes. a sense, yeah. Yes, and a number of really- my a number of my colleagues. I mean, maybe they didn't have like a very a concrete plan, but they had a lot of uh, understanding of how one goes about it, and they were they were very well prepared. And I think it did them well. Uh, um, with me again, I have to be very grateful to Dvora again, who uh, just without telling me or others showed me a lot of ways of how to build com- a community because uh, Dvorah and Perry really are kind of community builders and they have this ethos of communal um, research, which is something that one also benefits enormously from. So that was, I think, and yeah, meeting US scholars who, even if they are interpretivists, they know what they are doing in terms of their careers, if I can put it like this. And I admire this, I admire this. So I have learned quite a lot from from also this ethos of uh, professional research, being really serious about your job and not intellectualized for the intellectualizing sake, but having a purpose. So, but I I, I didn't have, let's say, I didn't uh, didn't get, very straightforward instructions and yeah I've been I think over years I have been figuring this out uh, on my own otherwise I mean it's difficult it's difficult to answer this question although I should be able to tell you in order to also tell students how to go about that and I more or less know now uh, but I, I, I didn't in the past. I think what's uh, important uh, over years is that I have found my communities and it is through this these relationships that I almost by osmosis uh, started to understand uh, about professionalization but uh, again I've never been part of 
and it's cool and I have to say or I I or maybe now I am I don't know I, I think I I am not so uh, or any turn or any uh, any of um, these kind of more formal ways of uh, helping you along uh, but now I, I think I know better. I mean, I also enjoy working with other people. So this is, I think, what I very much enjoy, co-authorship, for instance. So this is what I think uh, helped me along the way. So, um, and the this is also the period of time when you're working on, and it's, it, it, CEU is, is tenure track, right? It's, it's more yes. like the U.S. model, assistant and then associate. And so you're working towards promotion and tenure, right? Uh, yeah. There. And, uh, and so I think this is the period of time where I first uh, got to meet you at the Montreal ISA. I remember it was really cold. It was like in 2011. Um, and we had like a, <laughs> you, you maybe don't remember this. I remember uh, it because it was such a kind of a rowdy um, round table, but we had a round table on like the next generation of constructivist work or whatever. And you and David uh, McCourt and I, um, and Pekia Shalom, I think was on mm-hmm. there. Um but, you know, and, and all, all the talk about how people are tired of the isms. I mean, that was like a big thing even 10 years ago. People are tired of the isms and we're not associated with isms. And let's stop talking about the isms. And so you, you, you know, organize some roundtables on constructivism and you think no one's going to show up. And yet it was a packed huge room I remember for our round table and maybe I'm exaggerating in my mind maybe my, my memory isn't as good as yours but um I remember that being kind of a a, a rowdy uh, round table and then that also being a fun moment for me uh being able to then fully meet you know um all of these other f- folks that even if they're not part of a school at least we're at these moments where you know we're, we're all fairly early career researchers trying to mm-hmm. to break out in the world but yeah well um what i what comes to my mind now is that uh, there might not have been a school but many people say that there are fritzian or kratochelian scholars so I've heard it uh, on a number of occasions, and this I would say uh, yes to. Uh, also because I, yeah, there is this kind of instant recognition again, as problematic as it is, and as you know, clicky as some people might uh, perceive it, there is a kind of uh, a recognition of a certain approach uh, to scholarship. And uh, yeah, in in this sense, uh, yeah, there is uh, uh, Fritz also um, supervised a lot of people at EUI over years, uh, and some of them also went to policy. And there are kind of Kratochelians uh, in policy, which is obviously not visible at all, but they are kind of uh, rebels there, uh, uh, so to say. Well, um, in 2015, when uh, you were here, so I I, I want to make sure I, I'm matching this up on the timeline uh, with with your journey, but I just remember getting back to the assistant to the associate uh, mm-hmm. uh, track that you have at CEU. Um, I think you had just gotten promoted uh, and tenured uh, then, yes. because I just remember. Um, well, it was kind of a celebratory. I think we were kind of, you know, we were celebrating a lot of things uh, that spring and in, in 2015. But I just remember um, it seeming like uh, you were, you know, liberated again, to, so to speak. And so was the 
what what was it as stressful as it typically is here in the U.S. Academy? Do you think, uh, in terms of assistant to associate working towards tenure, the expectations that you have, all of that mm-hmm. stuff, or was that just something that you were relieved because it was another step in the journey uh, that 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 you were taking? Well, I also have to be honest that uh, I was probably happy with a small salary raise, yeah, because I've been a sure. poor scholar for a very very long time, so I might have celebrated that as well uh, but more seriously as well um, it was quite demanding I was uh, promoted mainly on articles and on these two edited volumes uh, and it took me six years uh, so it's uh, more or less uh, the US kind of uh, practice but here at CU people sometimes get uh, promoted earlier because the requirements are I think they are not so demanding uh, in the end. So we have a point, at least in my uh, department, we have a point system and you get this amount of points for this type of uh, publication and there are certain thresholds. You need to have a say a particular, you have to place an article uh, in a high-ranking journal or two, I think two, you need to, uh, if I remember our requirements uh, correctly. So it was pretty, I don't remember those years, entirely honest again, I don't remember uh, uh, those years as filled with anxiety and I'm going to kind of die tomorrow. Also because I had a kind of uh, quite an eventful life in Budapest and I was integrated uh, in the kind of city life and so on and so forth. Um, But yeah, I mean, I had to put in everything that was required and kind of step by step uh, I did. But it it took quite a long time uh, for our standards, I would say. So how did you get to Aber uh, on the fellowship? Um, back yeah, in 2017. Um, and and the only other thing I want to ask about this, if you're comfortable talking about it, right? Because you and I would exchange pictures sometimes of our dogs, and I just remember being so happy for you that you were going to Aber. But I was like really worried about your dog. Um, yeah, you have this beautiful. He's a German Shepherd, right? German uh, Shepherd. Uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an Ashalter dog. Um, yeah, but uh, I needed to find a new home for him, also because he grew to be a thirty-five kilogram uh, puppy, and we spent like a happy four years together. But it was also clear that he's not happy in a city life. Yeah, so that was this moment. Yeah, it was, it was a, a, yeah, it was a bit of a messy time in my life. Yeah, I realized that I was stuck personally, professionally, nothing was really working. I had to do something. And I applied for a Marikiri fellowship to Aberystwyth, also totally accidentally. I saw on social media a former student of ours that was doing um, a PhD at ABBA that ABBA is looking to sponsor. I mean, sponsor, you have to obviously apply uh, uh, to sponsor these uh, fellowships. And I was like, yeah, I mean, let's do that. Let's go. But I have to kind of, I had to sort out a lot of things uh, in my life. And uh, Tavo, I mean, my uh, puppy, I mean, it was clear that I needed to find um, 
and your home for him in the in the countryside, not in the kind of he didn't want to be a city dweller, so to say. But it was it, it was a difficult. Um, uh, it's difficult. I don't know. I mean, uh, I've I used to have small dogs when we uh, when I was a kid, and I think small dogs and big dogs are like almost like a different species because a big dog is really bodily, almost a person. So I remember I I was missing him kind of physically for months uh, after we parted. Because uh, he was like really a person, uh, a well, person they, in my they life. Up so much space, right? I mean, yeah. you're aware of them in this every single space yeah. where you go, uh, and especially when you were living with them in, you know, in a in, in a, a flat. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So this is uh, yeah. I found a new home for him. Uh, I I was shocked to actually get this fellowship because it was quite competitive, uh, but I did. And that was yet another moment that completely changed my life because I found, um, yeah, I found uh, a place with uh, a lot of appreciation for unorthodox uh, AYA research, even if obviously they are departments or there are different schools, different kind of, obviously, uh, epistemologies and so on and so forth. But um, working with Emilia, Emilia Kurki, she was the supervisor or mentor, how, as it, it's called, and spending time with her and also uh, with Berit uh, Bliseman de Guevara, who's a professor there now, um, and uh, doctoral students, uh, doctoral students at ABBA who are free to do whatever they want, bless them and they use it and that's why this community is so exciting and you can really uh, you can really thrive and also spending time i listened to the interview with um tarak and he was saying how important for him hiking is mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. decompress and i can only relate to that because I was in Wales, but it's uh, I also know Cornwall, Cornwall as well, uh, uh, Cornish countryside a little bit and a little bit English, and really kind of uh, I spend a lot of time hiking. Barrett once almost killed me when she took me on a hike that she was perfectly capable of uh, completing, but I almost I was on my four at the end of it uh, uh but uh those were very i mean a lot happened during those two years but uh, uh those were very happy times i completely de-stressed uh and decompressed uh although i also did some work it's not that i was only hiking there uh, but in this sense, it was uh, important it was important uh, to be part of the kind of conversations that they were having uh, fundamentally kind of changing the discipline, perhaps in terms of the role of uh, the Wilson chair, for instance, towards the end of my stay, they take it very seriously, they kind of confront it, and there are all sorts of uh, um, uh, take on this as well, and it was uh, important, uh, very important for me to witness uh, these conversations that they had uh, there. I also witnessed a kind of a process of restructuring because in the British, I, I'm not sure if uh, 
your British uh, interlocutors tell you also about uh, this sort of neoliberalization of the also UK academia and uh, restructuring is like a permanent feature and a permanent risk and danger of uh, almost every department every several years. So I, I have also witnessed that uh, and was quite, um, quite startling. Uh, I'd say how how such things go. Well, and you were there 2017 to 2019, so you're also yeah. seeing the potential or ever imminent, um, you know, implementation and restructuring vis-a-vis uh, -vis Brexit, right? Uh, so, you know, yeah. some of the different funding structures that they're probably on the lookout for, um, and then there, and then there is the the ref cycles that are happening, and those tend to to be the periods of time where you see. Um, an acceleration of the restructuring as well. So on the one hand, it sounds like it was um, you de-stressed, but it maybe was a little bit of a stressful environment for folks. Yes, that were, that were yes, yes. Again, a, a privileged position because I was there hanging out, absorbing positive things, uh, but they were going through a very difficult, yeah, it was, uh, I think the ref is now, uh, it was 2021, but it was clear when I was there that they were working towards uh, REV and I was uh, made part of it to kind of train me. So when you ask if I were to return to the question how and where I got professionalized, I think maybe at Aber in the end, as weird as it sounds, because they were working towards uh, uh, REV and Barrett was the director of research and uh, Milia was uh, also working, finishing her book her recent book so uh, I got a lot uh, of that but yeah extremely stressful times uh, and it was also the moment when uh, it was decided that CU needed to go to Vienna so there was also this layer of where do I go back like uh, uh, which place on earth um, uh, but still I think the atmosphere and the openness and the kind of generosity that I experienced at Aber, despite the abyss that they were going through, somehow uh, shines through regardless, uh, I would say. Which is hopeful, right? Uh, that we can yeah. have those moments of, uh, um, you know, inspiration that shine through. How do you approach writing? How do yeah. you write? Where do you write? Has it changed over the years? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I love reading your writing. Um, it almost seems like, again, the, the, the method stuff, especially, it just seems like it's just so natural. It just flows right out of, um, you know, your, your brain through your fingers and onto the, onto the computer. Um, and then, you know, as, as someone reading it, um, you know, uh, onto the screen, but, uh, but I'm wondering, is it, um, do you have like a, certain sort of standard operating procedure that you go through a certain practice. I wish, <laughs> I wish. And I would like to, I don't know, I would like to go through some training that would instill these habits in me. And, uh, uh, but no, I mean, all of my papers, are, um, it takes me a very long time because they kind of live with me. I mean, especially those that are really important. I do also a lot of policy work, so of course this is a different uh, th this is a, a different practice. But those uh, uh, more theoretical and more methodological, it always takes me a very long time, and I basically live with them. Uh, 
for a very long time and I write them in installments and at some point I get obsessed with finishing or because oh I got I get so drawn into one of them and then I really kind of completely devote myself uh, uh, to this paper so I don't have I don't have a very good practices to share at all uh, but there is a lot of reading and a lot of uh, thinking and very little strategizing, which I would perhaps like to change going forward, if it's at all possible to reform oneself. I also uh, have certain frameworks. I have a lot of experience, both theoretically and experientially with psychoanalysis. So it, it does ground me somehow, because I have certain uh, anchorage now. Uh, and a lot of references uh, from outside of IR. I'm probably, I'm not really writing IR. I mean, I was also thinking in the run-up to our conversation, which would be my IR paper. I don't think I have written a proper IR paper, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, I'm thinking a lot for a long time. I'm not a speedy writer. I'm not, I, I don't write to a template. Uh, but I have uh, I, I have certain uh, frameworks. I would like to, you know, achieve the state when I write, for instance, every day, as some people tell you, like write 20 minutes every day. It has never happened in my whole life. And it's so for me. So what I'm hearing, I think you're a little bit like I am where you just it 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 the moment captures you and then you're ready to to write maybe a little bit here and then at a certain point you hit a threshold of of weaving being able to weave all of those things together all of those little different parts or components together and um is there a particular time of day or night that you find you write better or is it again just like whenever the moment uh strikes yeah i think uh, if i because i'm an insomniac so if it happens that i kind of get up in the morning I think mornings are good but it happens rarely because of insomnia um, otherwise not otherwise uh, really I, I write whenever in this interim period and when there is a moment that yes I have it I want to kind of I know how to break through uh, then I can write days like days days on end the whole week every day if i have the luxury of not doing it not having to do anything else so then i write every day i remember in Aber when i was they have this welsh national uh, uh, library and i was I, I was going there every day and just writing writing a, a couple of papers i wrote there through like some fields and sheep on the way i would say hello to the sheep and uh, then to the, to the library so uh, yeah but i don't have a very concrete uh, procedures procedure that sounds so I, i'm so jealous I, like that just sounds awesome like saying saying hello to the sheep and then yeah. going to the to <laughs> to to sit down and write every day um well, so uh, well, you did mention this in reference to to Tarek's uh, interview as well. It does sound like, uh, in terms of decompressing and de-stressing, uh, walking around the countryside is part of it, and that helps you de-stress. But like your former life of being in karate, uh, do you still do that? Are you still like, um, you know? Well, uh, no, uh, no, I, I, I 
looking back, I wonder how I was able to participate fully in this kind of um, life and sport. But I have a little bit of uh, interest now in MMA, which is mixed martial art. And I got into it uh, and I'm quite drawn into it. I don't do it myself uh, yet also because of the pandemic, but I'm quite drawn into the industry, so to say. And I'm almost conceptualizing as a analogy to the, to the academic life, to be honest. It just, uh, it seems so different, but there are so many parallels. So I kind of watch a lot of MMA. Uh, as a way of decompressing uh, these days, as weird as it may uh, uh, seem, I look forward to, uh, yeah, uh, around Budapest, there, there are some places to hike, but not as much as I would like to. But ideally, I, I find a place on earth, maybe when I move to Vienna, when hiking is um, more accessible. Do you ski? I don't, okay. but I don't, I don't, but when you ask about skiing, I immediately remember when I was at Salt Lake mm -hmm. uh, at your workshop with Hannes as well, and the people with skis all over. <laughs> yes, yeah, and that was like towards the end of ski season, I think, um, which is actually one of the most popular times, uh, and we have, we're having a really, that was a pretty good winter for, for the ski season, and this is another really good winter for it. Um, I, I don't, I, I skied like 25 years ago, but I don't think my body mm -hmm. could, could, could handle it. My, my kids ski, my daughter, especially, uh, skis cause they, the school programs here on Fridays, the kids get out on Friday afternoons and a lot of them can go up to the, they mm -hmm. take a bus up to the ski resorts, which is great. But I just didn't know. Cause I figured like bringing in some Europeans, um, you know, to, to one of these, uh, workshops I thought well if people wanted to go skiing they could but I don't think anyone did uh, that spring no I think there were like uh, other activities going on now there were the <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well and you a lot of you went downtown I think too yes. right you looked at all of the um you know the, we did. the the Mormon institutions and the temple yes yes uh we did go with I remember that with the mm -hmm. with Hannes we went for a little city trip uh, it was very interesting yeah that's right so how did you get into wanting to be an editor of a journal? Um, you're, you're the editor of the journal. Uh, yes, the conting contingency yeah. again, contingency again. They, um, you know, when an when a important journal is up for grabs, so to say, there is a little bit of buzz uh, always and associations are also invested in finding finding a team that uh, will take it uh, forward. And that, uh, it was a similar situation. So uh, the Central and Eastern um, European ISA, they were looking for a new team and they approached some people. Uh, they, they approached also me, but very late in the process, very late. And they asked, so one would need to obviously have a, a page, write an editorial bit, and it was like, do I want to do this? I mean, I'm like tormented enough with my other, all sorts of other activities. Uh, but then I, uh, I talked uh, with several people and I thought, yeah, 
let's do that. And then, but I had to put together a team uh, and think about the, the bid. And uh, I, I asked uh, Saskia, we didn't know each other very well back then. So it was an intuition and a very good one. I'm very glad. And I put together, we put together a bit, which was basically all about uh, plur plur pluralistic approaches uh, uh, to IR, because GEAR Journal of International Relations and Development is a general IR journal, so to say, and we really kind of wanted to invest uh, into this pluralism. And this is how I put together the, uh, the team. I'm very grateful to them that they kind of uh, agreed to work with us. And we have, uh, we have all sorts of political science and IR uh, on the team. And uh, so I, I wrote it up and uh, took some energy, obviously, and the association decided to, uh, to give it to us. And um, as you know, running a journal, it's, uh, it is a challenge. It is a challenge. Uh, operate not only kind of strategically and in terms of what kind of scholarship you want to curate but operationally this is maybe something that we don't talk enough when we all complain about reviewers reviews editors this uh, this was done wrongly this was not done properly but there is uh, a lot of operational work and uh, that's basically day daily work not at the moment because we have the 30th of December, uh, but otherwise, uh, yes, I am learning loads every day. I'm learning from authors. I'm learning so much from reviewers. Uh, so this has been a, a tremendous experience, but uh, a bit stressful. It's one wants to pluralize, one wants to kind of promote early career scholars and do everything right. It's not so straightforward. No, it's, not, it's a lot of work. Yes. Yeah, but also not because someone uh, tries to prevent you from doing it. Not even that there is this sort of mainstream that is after you. It's, it's not even that, really. It's the kind of daily uh, daily work and this moment uh, when for instance you are dealing with an underdeveloped paper mm -hmm. how do you deal with an underdeveloped paper mm -hmm. yeah you want you want this paper to succeed you want this paper to succeed but it's not there yet mm -hmm. and you are kind of uh, in the midst uh, uh, of this process and um, I have been myself as an author I have submitted uh, underdeveloped papers, and they were rejected, rightly so. <laughs> uh, but this is uh, this this is a challenge, and I think we need, uh, if I may, uh, we need uh, really quite a lot of generosity towards each other, because we have many of us. We have been authors, reviewers, editors, and maybe some people were working even on the production side, but. Yeah, we need a little bit uh, more of that. Uh, that uh, it's obviously very difficult to deal with rejection, uh, but we do a lot of rejection. Maybe it's not a good uh, way to put it like this. I'm not promoting the journal, but we are also doing. We are putting a lot of energy into comprehensive mm. uh, reviewing and really helping authors along the way. Uh, but yeah, all sorts of challenges. Well, and you and you and I were chatting about this, but I mean, you took it over 
uh, right in the middle in the thick of a pandemic when yeah. uh which on the one i mean it's it, it's it's brought its own sort of bucket of uh challenges because you have bifurcations in terms of how how free uh how much free time some people might have to either review or submit manuscripts a complete lack of free time for others sometimes that yeah. breaks down on, on gender lines uh, a lot of times it does and then um just getting reviewers to say to say yes, yes. has been a challenge right i yes. mean and when and justifiably so i mean i, I can understand why people the last thing they want is a, is that invitation email in their inbox um and that just when you're talking about operationally having to to stick with it on a day-to-day -day basis i think that's what's what's yeah what uh, what i try to do now um what we try to do is to be quite transparent with the authors about the process and they get back to us and they ask where are my reviews it's been three months uh, but then i kind of write the email okay we've already sent around 200 emails on the account of this manuscript on this uh, we have already had around 20 declines to review uh, then uh, there one of the reviewers needed let's say 12 weeks rather than uh, six, uh, uh, four or, or six weeks. And I know it's frustrating on the part of the author because I've been an author myself, uh, but I, we just try to be uh, uh, transparent on this, uh, that there is no way. I mean, I can beg, I have begged reviewers. I have written personal emails and not to put pressure, but to ask like, what is what do you think might be a possible timeline? How do you see it? Do you prefer we look for uh, another? Because obviously I I've been a reviewer myself, and but yes, I mean what editors can do, yeah, they can beg, and I think it should be maybe also communicate to the authors. Yes, we have begged quite a lot on on behalf of your manuscript, and we hope it can be it can turn out all right. But yes, we are, and also uh, what I, I've started uh, doing when we have a split decision, I and it's quite obvious that we need to look for another reviewer because it would not be fair to make a judgment call like this. I also write to the author and, and I, I'll tell them, uh, look, this is a pretty standard, it's a pretty standard uh, uh, practice, but we wanted to let you know that it will take a little bit longer. And it might add to the anxiety, I, I realize that, but I also, we just want to be uh, transparent, that it's not that it, this is just how, how it works. And, uh, and also when Saskia and I, we sometimes do workshops for young researchers, how to right, uh, let's say papers for a journal, I, I tend to tell them, look, I, I, I have once been rejected from uh, GIRT and now I'm an editor or co-editor of GIRT. So, you know, there are different moments and papers get rejected and then you become an editor. So uh, it's a long uh, journey usually. Well, thank you, Professor Zemina. Karowska for joining the Hayseed Scholar podcast. Thank you so much, Brent. All right, that was my conversation with Professor Zimena Karowska of Central European University. I had such an enjoyable time chatting with her and getting to see her again, even if it was over Zoom. And like I said, I'm really hoping that we can cross paths in person 
at some point in 2022, if and when this pandemic at least stabilizes a little bit, we're dealing with the Omicron variant surge or tsunami right now, which is a challenge as always, um, providing all kinds of particular challenges, especially. So I hope you're all staying as safe and as healthy as possible and hanging in there and taking care of yourselves. All right, I hope to have a couple more episodes out to you within the next month, month and a half. It's a little bit busy of a spring semester for me, um, but I do have a couple of in-person conferences that look like they're still going forward, and so I'm looking forward to that, uh, staying safe while while doing that. Uh, and then I'm hoping that when the weather gets nicer, there's more vaccines and boosters roll out, not just nationally, but globally, that we may be stabilized uh, with this pandemic at some point, and we all get back to um, not necessarily a, the old normal, I don't think we're ever going back to that, but uh, something that allows many of us to intersect uh, once again in person. All right, so until next time, thanks so much for listening to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast, and cheers. Cheers.